chapter 9, which is page 811, 811 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. We're going to read the first verse and the twelfth verse, and our concern this morning is in the first 15 verses. And keep in mind, if you're new, the reason why we're at this text this morning is because um, in the fall of 2014, we started in chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, and we've been steadily working our way through with a few breaks here and there. And so this morning, we are on this chapter, and so we're actually going to talk about money, which is never comfortable to talk about. And I was thinking this week that if you've been sitting with us for the past six or eight weeks, basically what we've talked about, and you'll forgive me, is sex and money. (laughs) So you'd be like, man, that's all they ever talk about is sex and money here. But that's not the case. We're just kind of working steadily through the Bible, and I better get started, right? (laughs) Okay. Verse 1, chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Then verse 12. If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Amen. Let's bow together, please, and let's pray and let's ask for the help that we need so desperately. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart, with tears to wonders I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Father, we would ask that you would come in love and you would come in power and clarity as we study your word, the Bible. May no one leave here unchanged beginning with myself as we consider these things. We ask this for the glory of Christ, and we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So what we are dealing with here is Paul the Apostle in the previous chapter has been giving us unchanging instruction on the nature of Christian freedom. So if your Bible's open, you'll see in chapter 8, he uses a specific example, food sacrifice to idols, which helps us then make a right application by way of a principle in our day about love setting the limits of our freedom. And so what we've been learning these past few weeks, that we are not as Christians always free to do whatever we like and decide with only ourselves in mind in relation to things not expressly forbidden in God's word. And this is a fundamental principle that needs to be known in the church of Jesus Christ in the West because by and large, we really don't operate in this way. And so the principle that Paul is giving is in the ninth verse of chapter 8, in which Paul writes, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom, your rights, doing things that are not expressly forbidden in the Bible, be careful that your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. And that's the God-given principle that he's laying down. And the application of that principle can be seen in verse 13 of chapter 8, in which he writes, Therefore, if what I eat... Okay, if this secondary issue, this non-essential, my freedom, if it causes my brother to fall into sin, right, to make him sin against his own conscience, I'll never eat meat again. I'll never decide that way again. I'll never let that or enjoy that secondary issue again, that freedom again. I'll lay down my rights, and you can see it there, so that I will not cause him to fall. So now when we come to the ninth chapter, at first glance, 
one might think that Paul is suddenly changing the subject. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? That he's doing what my wife tells me that I do far too often, which she says that we are discussing stuff and all of a sudden I make the discussion about myself. So how dare her, right? Do that. And I've been meaning to talk to her about that. But anyway, Paul's not doing this. And you almost wish, as you look at your Bible, you almost wish that Paul would have went, for example, in between chapter 8 and 9, to help the reader a little bit in transition. He doesn't do that. That's fine. But he's going to use himself uh, uh, as an example of how one can make this uh, application in a right way of this God-given principle of Christian freedom. So a couple of things. One, he uses a terrifically difficult example, financial support for his ministry, would all would agree. And the second thing, as you think about Christian freedom, he's making this kind of underlying case that clearly Christianity is communal. It is not individual. And that is so important, again, for our day because so much of Christianity comes to us as individual. What do you need and what do you want and what can you get from God? And Paul's making this communal. We, we, we. And if you think that that somehow then this is unimportant in our modern age, Please consider this. Many a person, young or old, has come into the church of Jesus Christ absolutely certain that God is calling them to do something, some some secondary thing. Thus, they one-sidedly, because they're untaught, find it necessary to cling to their rights and never dream of losing them because, after all, God told them or led them or these are my rights. Now, without questioning one bit the authenticity of their belief, what we are learning here is that we may have to stop the exercise of our freedom for the sake of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because to sin against them in this way would be to sin against Jesus Christ. And that's just one application. We could spend many an hour thinking about some parachurch organizations wherein the whole reason they started, that they were created, was that a freedom they wanted to exercise but couldn't be exercised in the context of the church so they just left. And you see, that's why subjective Christianity, personal-based Christianity, personal experience-based Christianity, when that becomes the basis of our truth, the basis of our doctrine, the basis of our mission and ministry, then all of a sudden, that becomes dangerous. And if you're thinking those things through, then you'll probably agree with what I'm saying because by and large, that happens a tremendous amount of times. So if in a line, if we had to describe what Paul is establishing as a principle and the use of our Christian freedom and how he decided that which was not expressly forbidden or clearly allowed by God, it would be this. Verse 12b, do you see it there? We read it. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything. Apos is the Greek word. It's a universal word. Everything. There's not one thing that we would not put up with rather than to hinder or the gospel of Christ. Now, do you understand what Paul's saying? Because this is tremendously important. He's thinking things through with the implication of the use of his rights with Christ, with the gospel, and others in mind. He is at his kitchen table, and he's asking the second and third and fourth question of what will take place when you and I, honey, decide to do what we do, which is okay to do, but may not be useful to do. In other words, when I do that thing, when I go that place, when I frame my life, I may have to say no. I may have to not go. I may have to set aside my freedom rather than hinder the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And loved ones, you'll forgive me, but you will not find that in cultural Christianity. You will not find that in popular Christianity, but you will find that in biblical Christianity. And you will find that in Paul, whose example he told us to follow later on at the end of 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. So, so how important do you think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to Paul? Because what he's saying is, I am free to restrict and lose my freedom. I'm free to lose my rights for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel being advanced. And with no guarantee of the influence Christianity will continue to have in the West, the question is, is the church of Jesus Christ prepared for what may come? Is the church prepared to lose their rights as long as the gospel is advanced? Because that was Paul's context. Paul in his day had very little rights, but the gospel advanced beautifully. And the gospel advanced certainly at a greater clip than it does now in the West. You see, Paul understands that to live for Jesus Christ to the utmost, with any degree of effectiveness whatsoever, he would have to live with his self as last. Right? Live with his self as last. In other words, Paul says, I have freedoms. I cherish those freedoms no less than you do. But I, Paul, cherish some other things even more. Namely... The Lord Jesus Christ, the work of his church, and the outsider who as of now is in an awfully terrifying position. If Jesus determined to come now and shut the whole thing down, they would be lost for all eternity. So it's striking, isn't it? I will diminish my rights as low as allowed and needed for the sake of the gospel. That cuts into the life, doesn't it? It cuts into the life. I read this week of a group of people who lived in the 19th century off the coast of Nantucket. They were called the Humane Society. That was the name they gave themselves. And since in those days, travel by sea was extremely dangerous, and because of the storms that were frequent on the Massachusetts coast, a rocky coast at that, many lives would be lost a mile or so off land. So this group of volunteers went into, if you would, the life-saving business, and they aligned themselves together. They built huts all along the coastline, and they had people watching the coast all the time. And whenever a ship went down, the word would go out and the people would devote everything to save every life they could. They didn't put themselves at risk now for money. And they didn't put themselves at risk for recognition. They didn't, they didn't put themselves at risk, if you'll forgive me, so they could post it. They put themselves at risk only because they prized and they cherished human life. And to remind them what was at stake, they adopted a motto, and the motto was this. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Something, isn't it? You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. It's hard not to think of the 9-11 firefighters when you hear that motto. And this is Apostle Paul. This is what he is. He would risk everything to save the lives as, as many people as possible. So he told them, when it comes to my personal rights, I put up with everything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. I have the freedom, and this is so liberating, I have the freedom to restrict my freedom. He told them love for others sets the limits of our freedom. He said, my Christian duty is greater than my Christian rights. And what Christian freedom then and rights means in a kind of practical terms to Paul, he's going to address now in these 15 verses. And he does the dangerous thing, and I think you'll agree with me, of putting himself forward as the example. So what we do is we have about three points to work through these verses. Verse 
Verses 1 to 3, his rank. Verses 4 to 6, his rights. Verses 7 through 15, the first part of verse 15, his rationale. What he does there is he explains why he could say what he says in these first six verses. So first of all, then, Paul's rank. Now, it's clear that there were some in Corinth calling into question Paul's rank as an apostle and his authority as an apostle. Remember, at this time, as of yet, there wasn't a complete New Testament. So the apostles were those given the grace and given the responsibility to speak the very words of God. And some in the church in Corinth thought that they knew better than Paul and they thought they could do better than Paul. Therefore, as the case will always be, they sat in judgment over Paul. In fact, if your Bible's open, verse 3, the Greek word for the phrase, those who sit in judgment, is language taken right from the courtroom of Paul's day. It would mean cross-examine me. And so there were some very willing to cross-examine Paul. Paul uses another word from the law courts of his day, verse 3, this is my defense, this is my rebuttal. Now stay with me. There are Bible commentaries that say that when Paul spoke about his defense, he was referring to verses 1 and 2. And then some say, no, no, he's referring to verse 4. So you would think, well, why is that important? Well, it's kind of important. And I'm going to suggest to you that when Paul talks about his defense, he's talking about verses 1 and 2. And here's the reason why. He's using a rhetorical advice to make his readers begin to think like a Christian. Okay, so question. How does one gain this kind of freedom that Paul speaks of? Answer, there's only one way. They get this kind of freedom in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith in Christ, by God's grace, gives us this freedom. So they didn't earn it. They didn't have it coming to them. It was grace. So the non-Christian is still a slave to themselves, a slave to sin, a slave to the devil, and a slave to the fear of death. They have absolutely no freedom. The Christian has none of those worries. And Paul says, I'm free. I am free, not because I'm declaring it, but because it was given to me by promise, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is just demonstrating the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It affects him. And it affects every Christian this way. He's been set free from sin, just like every Christian is. And now Paul has been set loose, if you would, for righteousness. However, Paul's relationship with Jesus is just a bit different insofar as that he is an apostle. And this privilege was given only to a few. Verse 1, third sentence, have I not seen the risen Lord? In other words, Paul's rank and authority as an apostle wasn't a self-appointment. He didn't get out of bed one day and said, you know what, I think I'm going to be an apostle. It wasn't a result of a group of people coming together and said, you're an apostle. This was a divine initiative. Part of what was Paul's unique and unrepeatable responsibilities was because Paul was a part of a unique and unrepeatable group that shared three things in common. And you'll need to understand this. Every time I talk about this in the past few years, questions always come and it's always the same. And so sometimes you'll be moving around in churches and you'll hear people say, uh, this man is an apostle from such and such a church. And you would want to say, no, they are not. That is absolute foolishness. There are no apostles today because there are no apostles needed today because theirs is a completed work. The apostles, again, were a unique and unrepeatable group which were the very foundation of the church after the ascension of Christ. And as I said a moment ago, they had three things in common. Number one, they had seen the risen Christ. Two, they had a divine commission 
spoken verbally from the risen Christ. And three, they were inspired by the Spirit of God in a unique and unrepeatable way, which is why the words they wrote, which are inspired texts, is something that we obey. Because they're given to us from God through the pen of these apostles. And these three things marked out the apostles. So that means, you guys, there's no new news needed. There's nothing new that we need to know from God. John chapter 15, verse 15. Jesus to his future apostles. Everything I learned from the Father, Jesus says, I made known to you. It's good, right? Everything that you need to know that the Father told me, I made known to you and you could continue on and we wrote it down, the apostles could say in words. Which is why Luke records for us the, the, the words of Ananias through the mouth of Paul when he was once again defending his ministry, defending his calling. Acts chapter 22 verse 14, the God of our Father has chosen you for three things. One, to know his will. Two, to see the righteous one. Three, to hear words from his mouth. And as a result of this, verse 15, you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen. Listen to that. What you've seen and heard. Past tense. No new news. Past tense. So that's Paul's first defense of his rank. It's technical, but it needs to be said. His second defense of his rank was the Corinthian church itself. Look at verse 2. Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. So Paul would say, who preached Jesus to you? Who came all the way to you with the gospel? Who went through all kinds of fears and all kinds of tremblings to present you Jesus Christ? Answer, Paul did. And these Corinthian converts then were the seal of Paul's apostleship. Yes, conversion is a divine work. Nobody can make Christians, no matter how terrific they think they are. Only Christ can make Christians. Only God can. But the humans are part of God's plan. God is the one who makes things grow. The humans are part of God's plan. So effective ministry is only as a result of what God is pleased to give. So the Christians in Corinth were Paul's seal of God's approval. So there you go. He's defending his rank. Now he goes from his rank to his rights. That's our second point, verses 4 to 6. So, so what we have then in Paul is a, is a great thinker. What he's going to do, he's going to carefully build a clear defense on why he has these rights to receive their financial support and why he's also willing to lose them. So in other words, you guys, when he comes into them, he's not trying to throw his apostolic weight around. He's not saying, don't you know who I am? Nor does he want the church to think that because, you know, he's not acting like the so-called super apostles or a group of people in that context that thought they were super, that they were above Paul, hence the name super apostles, and they were behaving like rock stars... And they were taking the church's money. And the church thought that because Paul doesn't charge a fee, he's probably not worth much. Right? The higher the fee, the better the guy. That was their thinking. So they think because he doesn't want any money, then he's probably not the real thing. Tell me that isn't current. So Paul's making a clear case. For the sake of the gospel, so that nothing will hinder the gospel, verse 12, every one of my God-given rights is on the table. And so he does this affirmation three, by giving three rights and see if they're there. Verse 4, number 1, the first right, the right to life. Verse 4, food and drink. In other words, Paul is making a basic argument. Don't we have the right to be maintained by the church because we've got to eat and we've got to drink and we've got to live 
And we've got to buy things. Just like everybody else does. And what's the sensible answer? Of course. Of course. That's his first right. The second right, the right to take a wife. Verse 5. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? James and Cephas, these other apostles, Peter, they do. In other words, if it's right for the church to support the apostle, then presumably if the apostle determines to take his wife along in his journeys, then the church should support her as well. Now, that's important, isn't it? Because oftentimes, when a man is sent out, there's a tremendous amount of temptations. Nobody is that good that they can maintain that kind of a thing without having their wife around. We learn that in chapter 7 and 6 of 1 Corinthians. So as you think about this, then this is not then a, a right to get married. And that goes without saying, right? But Paul is saying, if I'm married as a minister, then I should be able to expect to take my wife along with me and the support from the church to that end. So as you think about this, then that means the, the Roman Catholic dogma, which says celibacy is the only way to legitimate ministry, it's completely wrong. Now, that didn't start until the 14th century, and it denies the Bible, because if they say Peter is the first pope, okay, there's a huge problem. Because Peter was married. He was married. And it's interesting that Paul says that you have the right to take along not just a wife, but a believing wife. If you have a King James Version, you see a wife, a sister. Adelphi is the Greek word. Well, what is that? That's a double bond of a Christian marriage. You are in union together as husband and wife, which is great. And now you're in union together with Jesus Christ, which is great. And those of you that have served together with your wife, you know that sense of this is great. We're serving Jesus together as one and one as brother and sister in Christ. Okay, so the right to life, the right to take his wife along in ministry. His third right, verse 6, literally it reads, don't we have the right of not working other jobs? That's verse 6. In other words, the right not to have to do other things, to hold down other jobs, so that I have the right to earn my living, says Paul, from the gospel. And again, it's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Well, the answer is yes. Don't I have the right to pull, put all my time and all my energy in the gospel? Answer, yes. And we would do well to remember, now think this through, that Paul's ministry in Corinth really didn't take off until when? Until he received the gift from the Macedonian church, enabling him to devote, and this is a quote from Acts, to devote himself exclusively to preaching, which means two things. Number one, the support of the church is important, but it also means, number two, that preaching is important. And we kind of know that preaching is in the shadows. Guys like me, we talk too long, we can't keep your attention, all that kind of stuff. We understand that. But what happened was, when Paul began to preach, then lives were changed by the power of God. So then the question comes, okay? What is Paul's rationale for, for this? Okay, Paul says that he has the right to receive provision from the church. Okay? So, Paul, what's your rationale? You can't just say that stuff from the air. Why do you say that? Well, look at verses 7 through 15 then. And now we're on our third and final point. And so what he does then is he gives, again, sorry about this, he gives five reasons. And again, Paul is a great thinker. He's showing a great deal of respect 
by holding his listeners' hands and saying, okay, we're going to walk through this. Money's such a big deal with people. So we're going to carefully, thoughtfully walk through this so that you can know my rights. Okay? And then he begins. His rationale, reason number one, it's in keeping with common practice. In other words, verse 7, just think it out. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Right? A soldier does not serve at their own expense. He doesn't fight for free. A farmer cultivating a crop enjoys the fruit of his labors. He doesn't farm for free. A shepherd doing the hard work of shepherding. He doesn't work for free. And so in all three examples, by way of custom, by way of common practice, by just thinking, by natural law, whatever, it's a pretty simple principle. A worker should get paid. A worker should get paid. Reason number two, in keeping with biblical precept, that's what it is. Verse 8, this is, what it, keeping with, this is what the Bible says. Verse 8, do I say this merely on human authority? Natural law? No. Doesn't the law, God's law, say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about the oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hopes of sharing in the harvest. So then the Lord of the harvest says this law. He lays down this law. Hard workers should be rewarded for their labors. So then this Old Testament law wasn't merely for oxen. It was for man. Now, the minister may feel like an ox. He might get treated like an ox. But the point here, if God is concerned about an ox, and God is concerned about an ox, how much more the man? How much more the man? Okay, Paul. Why should you, Paul, or any authentic gospel ministry, okay, this is not ministry where people are making up ministries in their heads with their Bibles closed. Why should any authentic, gospel-centered ministry expect their living from the church, from the people of God? Well, it makes sense. It's common sense. It's an Old Testament law. Three, it's just. Verse 11. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? So, so clearly the, the Corinthians have been benefiting from the ministry of Paul. And Paul would say, how much is that worth to you? Right? If there was no Paul in Corinth, from the human side of things, there'd be no Christians in Corinth. And if there was no Paul in Corinth, there'd be no church in Corinth. And there's a lot of places in the world right now that don't have the luxury that we have. And people need to be sent there. And so this can be confusing because if you take this in our day, there are many a religious charlatan who uses this line to why we should send them $50 a month and get their free book and their free CD, which is worth about 50 cents, to unlock the secrets of more blessing from God. And loved ones, I hope none of us are falling for that as we think about things and we think about our resources. Because these people line the pockets, their pockets, playing head games with people who are not clear on the truth. Begging for money, giving empty promises that are equivalent of a pipe dream. A bunch of bad apples. A whole bunch of them. Get tired of seeing them, to be real honest with you. And they try to ruin the whole bunch. The principle is clear. This is John Stott. The authentic Christian minister. The Lord's servants are to be supported well. There should not be a double standard applied to preachers, missionaries, and other Christian ministers. 
a standard that is considerably lower than that set for those laboring in the system of man. We should pay them as generously as is feasible and leave the stewardship of that money to them, just as we expect the stewardship of our own money to be left to us. In other words, if your pastor comes rolling in the parking lot with a newer, nicer car, please don't freak out. Right? Don't freak out. He's allowed to spend his money the way that he deems best. So then in verse 12b, Paul doesn't let up. And he says, those who have a far less claim to support from the church receive their support. Shouldn't he and shouldn't Barnabas all the more? Do you see it there? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? So, so clearly there were people poaching off the Corinthian Christians. They were giving money to these other ministries and ministers who were not true, authentic, Christ-centered ministries. So again, in relationship to some parachurch organizations and the vast amount of resources spent on endeavors that oftentimes here today and gone tomorrow, clearly not biblical, stuff that people just grab out of the air, but oh, so exciting. While the faithful, hardworking pastor the faithful, hardworking, average pastor lives on business and pieces while Mr. Cool Ray is living large on the hard-earned income of men and women having been manipulated by what appears exciting and relevant and, oh, certainly from God. But it's not. It's not. And therefore, they pull these resources from the work of Christ by way of the work of the church or authentic gospel ministry. So the, the thought comes to mind, Mr. Cool Ray, who wrote his wonderful book way back in 1988, how he was certain that Jesus was coming in 1988, and he was wrong, and so he wrote another book, and people bought it. This time it was 1998, and then again, he was wrong, and people bought it, and bought into that, and framed their lives in that. So Mr. Ex-Astronaut, the fellow that I'm referring to, is, is on his farm or ranch somewhere, I think in Arkansas, he's fine. He's got his cash. He's fine. He was wrong three times. He did exactly what Jesus said not to do three times. But he's fine. And so the people that had to give and give and give because they didn't know. I wonder if he ever thinks about them. I wonder if he would think about giving his money back. Most businesses would do that, wouldn't they? Oh, we were wrong? Oh, we're going to try to give you some of that money back. Loved ones, the work of the kingdom is the work of the church primarily. And the principle is the principle. And that's why we need to think long term in relation to these things because parachurch organizations, as good as they are, and many of them are absolutely wonderful, they've only been around for 40, 50, 60 years. The church of Jesus Christ did just fine for a, for a millennia, two, almost two millennia without them. So Paul says we have a right to receive. Make no mistake about that. Fourth reason out of the five Paul gives for his rationale for their support. Common practice, number one, biblical precept, number two, it's just, number three, uh, number four, it's keeping with an Old Testament pattern of ministry. Verse 13, do you see it there? Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on that altar. And the answer, again, should be yes. It's a rhetorical question. Sure, the priest would receive a portion of the sacrifices made by the people. And that is how, by and large, the priest fed his family. That was the Old Testament pattern. That was a pattern for priests and those who served in the temple. They were not self-financed. They would, by God's decree, get their food from the altar. 
And everybody knew that. Finally, finally, his fifth reason for uh, financial compensation is the big one. Jesus said it. Verse 14, right? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel, okay, authentic Christian ministry, those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. That's Paul's clinching argument to why he has the right to their support. Jesus said it. Jesus said it. Now, as you think about this, Jesus didn't say this exactly, at least nowhere recorded it for us in the New Testament. But there was a principle, Matthew chapter 10, verses 8 to 10. Listen to your Bible. Jesus said to his disciples, freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worth his keep. In other words, and please listen carefully, Jesus saying to his ministers, be at peace. You're going to get the money. If you genuinely sow spiritually, you will reap material. God will watch over you. His people will be the means that he provides for you. And and loved ones, you can't go into ministry all stocked up. No gold, no silver, no bag. You can't do that. This is a life of faith. Ministers are called to a life of faith. And I have seen this time and time again where money gets in the way of good men and good women entering into ministry because they got to have it all up front. They got to know for sure. There can't be any doubts. I kind of trust you, Jesus, but I don't really trust you, Jesus. I need numbers. I need hard numbers. And then I'll go into ministry. And Jesus looks at them and says, listen carefully. I just gave you my word. I just gave you my word. Is that not enough? I think I've told you the story of C.T. Studd. In fact, I'm pretty sure I have. He was born into a wealthy family worth millions of, of American dollars. And he was called by God to enter into the mission field in Africa. And so he determined because of his situation in life and his station in life that he would take all of his money, all of his inheritance, we're talking about millions of dollars, and give it away before he went to Africa. He did that except for about 150,000 pounds which would be the equivalent of about 236,000 American dollars. We'll call it 240,000 American dollars. So he kept the $240,000 for his wife. His wife found out that he was saving the money for her. She says, but I thought you were trusting God. He says, I am, but just in case something happens to me, I wanted you to be taken care of. And she said, I think something my wife would say, give it away. Just give it all away. So they sat down, they wrote a check to William Booth of the Salvation Army for 150,000 pounds, and they went to Africa with absolutely no money. And loved ones, they were just fine. Because he, they, were going to Africa not for profit, not for ease. They were not going to Africa as tourists. They were going as evangelists. They were going for the sake of Jesus Christ. They were going for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus would keep his word. Because Jesus always does. And they would be fine. And if you read their biography, they were tremendously fine. Now, loved ones, I want you to listen carefully to me. After Paul clearly and properly makes this wonderful argument, very clear, very concise, why he has the right to expect the church to support them in the work, you would think that he would say, okay, now get out your checkbooks. Start writing. But look what he does. Verse 12b. Verse 15. We have not used these rights. Right, you're thinking, here it comes. 
And he showed us pictures of, of starving children. And he showed us pictures of this. And my heart is sad now. And I better get out of my checkbook. And, and Paul's like, no, I don't want your money. I do not want your money. So now he's in the driver's seat, right? He's not playing mind games with people. If I say this on any random Sunday, you'd be like, who does he think he is? Is he gunning for a raise? I mean, didn't we just give him a raise? And oh, Mr. Smarty Pants is going on a sabbatical in a few weeks. And, you know, who does he think he is? Paul has no such worry. He speaks with impunity. He lays down this clear argument and says, okay then, look, you should provide for me. You cannot wiggle out of this. It is your responsibility to to give to the ministry. But Paul says, I am free not to use my freedom. You guys, that is so liberating. I just love thinking about that. I am free not to use my freedom. I'm not going to freak out if I can't use my freedom. I'm not going to exercise my freedom for your finances. Okay, Paul, why? Well, number one, look at your Bible, please, verse 15. I don't want anything to hinder the gospel. The word for hinder was a word for digging up the road so that the enemy couldn't advance. So Paul is saying, we felt that if we had been the recipients of your provision in that context, the recipients of what we have a right to, we thought that people would say, okay, you're in the gospel thing for the money. I mean, super apostles, they charge high fees. And now here you go, Paul, and you're going to charge a high fee. And you're just in this Jesus thing for the money. Second thing he said, they refused their rights so that others wouldn't think that they were going to go through the back door for material gain. Verse 15, second sentence, I'm not writing this in the hope that you would do such things for me. So, So you know what he's saying. He's not playing mind games with the people, right? So, hey, Joe, how was your week? Oh, it was pretty good. I had to spend $2,000 on a car repair. I had to spend $1,000 on this repair. I had to spend 50 cents on this. I had $80 this, and we didn't count on this. But everything fine. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Right? Underlining thing. If God wants to put it on your heart to give the franchise some cash, please do. He's not doing that. He's not playing mind games. And finally, they refused their right so that the church would not think that they were being paid to preach. And this is where we'll close. You do not pay your pastor to preach. I don't preach for your money. I preach because I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I preached the gospel for free in my early years. To be honest with you, I was horrible at it. But I did it. Now I want you to think with me as we finish out. A long time ago, longer now than I care to think about, I sat in my little cubby in our school library. I was finishing my master's degree. Everything was coming to a close. And I prayed this one simple prayer. Maybe I should have prayed more. Maybe not. But this is what I prayed. I said, God, please. And this was it. I said, please, let me teach and preach your word until I die or until you return. That's it. Please. So here I am now, 20 plus years removed from that situation. God has been so amazingly faithful. I never came into a situation where I said, I need this much if I'm going to be here. Never did that anywhere. Some people say that's crazy. That's just the way I roll. And God's been so good to us. So the money I receive then is from the benefit and kindness of your hearts and the sweat of your back 
which makes it possible for me to study, to have workday time to study my Bible and to pray so that I might be properly prepared and not preach like some jabbering fool. So then this is not a pay and preach operation. It can never be that. You can't reduce this to that. So then these things matter. Because ministries and ministers are destroyed in areas of finance. And ours could be destroyed. I could be destroyed as well. So then we just heed the words of the Bible. We heed the words of Paul. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he falls. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together and let's pray. Our gracious God, we give glory to your name. As difficult as it is, we thank you that you cover everything of necessity in your word, the Bible. It's never easy, Father, or comfortable to speak on these things because the potential for so much um, thoughts that are being led astray is there. But nevertheless, we did what we did and we thank you for your help and for your grace which abounded not only in the week that was given but then now, God, in the presentation of the truth as it is in Jesus. Please help us to think these things through. Please help us to be careful with how we disperse our money. Please, God, help us to think Christian about everything. Help us not to fall for for traps, for snares. It would put us in a position where we're not advancing the kingdom. We're simply advancing the man or a woman. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both this morning and evermore. For Jesus' sake, amen.